I want you to turn your Bibles this morning to Colossians 3. Chapter 3 is where I'd like to turn your attention this morning in the Word of God. Last week we uh, spent our time talking about the workplace and the joy of getting to go to work when we see it in a proper fashion. Last week we focused on why we work. This week I want to turn our attention to how we work. The why we work is twofold in Ephesians 4. And that is that it is the means by which we provide for our family and it's the means by which we are ready to share with those in need. Both of those are means by which we fulfill the great commandment that God gave us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And this idea of providing for those in our sphere of influence, both whether it's our family or people around us that come into times of need, both are means by which we fulfill the great commandment. A verse that comes to my mind when I think about our daily life, and, and we, we understand that a majority of our time as individuals is spent in, in some way in, in a workplace, whether it's in the house or whether it's out on the street. There are tasks that we have to do, and there are ways that we have to do them and should do them. There are appropriate ways to work, and there are inappropriate ways, ways for us to work. As I, as I thought about this topic, the one text that I could not avoid was Matthew 5. Uh, I kept thinking about how Jesus encourages us to be the light of the world. He says to the early disciples, you are the light of the world. You are the means by which I desire to influence the world around us. And we are the salt of the earth. And I, I would make the argument, I think pretty strongly, that we as believers in our work life have an opportunity to let the brilliant light of Christ shine, often in environments that aren't all that pleasing or enjoyable for many of us. Uh, some of the circumstances in which individuals work, some of the people and personalities that you have the pleasure of working with, uh, sometimes challenge you. And it's easy to kind of a, a buy into the, 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 you know, you give me bad, I'm going to give you bad. A little bit of a payback mindset. And I think the gospel calls us as Christians to adopt a different mindset in the workplace. That we don't, we don't lower ourselves uh, to the way that many people tend to function and operate in the workplace. But we realize that we have a distinct calling from God to be lights. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but... It, a brilliant light is always seen to be brighter in a dark place. And so if in the context of your workplace, you have a fairly regular, fairly regular or strong reason for complaint, I want you to kind of readjust your thinking and ask, how can I in this place be the light that God is calling me to be and that Jesus has designated us to be? How do I make a difference in that difficult workplace? That's the mission. That's the task. That's the calling that God gives to each one of us. I also thought about work in terms of this sacred, secular divide that we discussed a little bit last Sunday morning. And in, in one of the, the articles I was reading about work, the author, a Christian, made the observation that we often and appropriately pray for people that are going to the mission field, as we prayed for Brad and Kelly this morning. It is utterly inappropriate, uh, utterly appropriate for us to uphold those individuals in a special season of prayer. But this man's challenge was this. He says, why is it that when a, a child goes off to Bible college or seminary, we pray for them? But when a child goes off to school to work in the business realm, we don't treat it seriously. And that stopped me in my tracks. 
we, we have a tendency to undervalue our lives because we live with a, a bit of a divide in our mind. This text that we're studying, Matthew 5, closes the gap. You are the witness of God. We, in our work lives, put skin on Jesus for people. We make him tangible and visible and hearable for people. Sometimes the only Christ that many people will see is you. And so I want to encourage you to think about the importance of the task that God has given to us. I want to read Colossians 3, starting in verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is Christ, the Lord, that you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism with God. Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, so the elephant in the room is that this is a text that talks about slavery, right? And so every time you bring up this topic in our world, when you read these texts, there should be something in you that kind of says, wait a second, okay? Uh, Really, I think what most of us would expect to find is a clear condemnation of slavery from Paul, right? Things that most of us would have an expectation of. But there are a couple of things that I think are, are, are important for us to understand. In the ancient world, household slaves were normative. Okay, And the kind of slavery that's described in the New Testament times is fundamentally different from what most of us think of as slavery as we know it in the American setting. And I want to give you just a, a couple of, of uh, examples of the difference Okay, and then I want to address why Paul doesn't hit it head on, why he instead seems to write the destruction of slavery into the workforce of his day. These are the ways in which it was different. Slavery in the time of Paul was not based on race. Okay, it wasn't, a, it wasn't white people taking black people and abusing them in the workplace. Okay, that's not what was going on. Secondly, the slavery of the first century was not a permanent slavery. So it wasn't in ownership per se in many of the cases. Third, it wasn't done by kidnapping. Okay, Most of the slavery that was practiced by uh, Britain and America, and quite frankly, most countries in the world, was based on people being taken from their land and put into employ as chattel or as property as workers. Okay, And there was a difference in that way. The truth is that most of those that were slaves in the ancient world were prisoners of war often. People that had been invading each other, they got defeated and they were put into some level of employed. Most of them also were not permanent or indentured slaves. And the other observation that one writer makes is that they had the right to go to court against their master. That was not the case in slavery in America or in Britain or in many other parts of the world. Okay, so it's without getting into an extensive dissertation on slavery, okay, I want you to understand there were some fundamental distinctions between what was happening in the time of Paul and what, is ha what was happening in the Americas and in Britain, uh, which is what's most common in our minds. The other thing I want to say is this, because this is often misunderstood or written out of the history. Uh, the overthrow of slavery 
was driven by evangelical Christians. If you've ever seen the movie Amazing Grace, you know that there was a historical figure who strongly influenced Prime Minister Pitt. Uh, his name was William Wilberforce. He was gloriously converted by the gospel. If you, if you want to read some fascinating stuff, go read the story of William Wilberforce. The gospel took hold of his life, put him on a mission at great personal sacrifice to see this, this tragedy of slavery utterly destroyed uh, in Britain and in America. So it's, I think it's important that we say, uh, while Paul does not in this context call for a revolt, and please understand the context It was a world where this was present in a different way than we knew it in the Americas. But it was present, and to call people to revolt would have led to the devastation and destruction of the early church. So Paul wisely counsels believers in this context as to how you live your life in your daily responsibilities. He talks about parental responsibilities. He talks about marital responsibilities. He talks about work responsibilities. And what Paul is doing is writing Christian ethic into the culture. By proclaiming God's truth and God's patterns to people so that as they began to live out the gospel, substantial changes would come to the culture. Okay? So the question Paul's addressing is not, should we overthrow slavery or not? Okay? That's not the question he was addressing. He was addressing, how does a Christian live, as Doug said to us a few weeks ago, Christianly in the world that they were in? He's not telling them to leave their world. He's telling them to live in that world. The other thing I want to say is this. There is an interesting way that Paul in his writings and teachings to workers and to owners or bosses, if you will, there is a sense in which Paul, F.F. Bruce said, is bringing us into an atmosphere, a new way of thinking about people in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die He sounds a call to end it by redefining the relationships in terms of the gospel, okay? And so you'll find historically that as the church spread, you get into Protestant countries by and large, uh, over time, grew to have an ethic that was more robust in terms of gospel-centeredness and Christianliness. I know that's not a word either, but, okay? There was a robust kind of theology of life, of of marriage, and how a man was to love his wife, not use his wife, how he was to honor his children and not frustrate them, and how an individual who had household servants was to treat them with a deep degree of respect to the degree in Philemon that Paul says to Philemon, Onesimus, your slave, is in fact your brother, and I want you to receive him the same way that you would receive me. Now, in that, what is Paul doing? Paul is removing the distinctions in the ancient world culture that were driving people apart and calling people to live in the context of relationships with one another. And in that, there is a, if you will, a, an, an end to slavery that is kind of started, but not fully realized till later. So the text that we're going to look at this morning moves in two ways. It deals with how... And employee functions, and it deals with how an employer functions or lives, okay? The text, interestingly, spends more time on the employee, giving special focus and attention. And then there is a very direct uh, word that is given to those that work as leaders in the workplace. So I want you to think this morning in terms of how you work in the context of your job 
and how you lead if you have supervisory responsibilities in the context of your work. Okay, we'll work our way through the text, looking first at, for an employee, my attitude in my work. Verse 22, he says, Obey your earthly masters in everything, and do not only do it when their eye is on you, to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. This is a strong text. What is an employee called to do? When you go to work tomorrow morning, what is the directive that God gives you? What does he expect of you? Here's what I believe God expects of us. He calls us to respectfully follow the directives of those that lead us in the workplace. That Christians aren't to be the cantankerous types in the workplace. That we're to be respectful and compliant, if you will. Not compromising, but certainly compliant and open to direction and leadership as it is given. We are called in this text to give an honest day's work in everything and to serve wholeheartedly. And then Paul makes an interesting observation. He says, not with eye services. It's very interesting. This text takes me back to when I was younger. Uh, the word kind of is a, it's a mashup, if you will, of the Greek word eyes and the Greek word services. Okay, so Paul kind of brings those two words together and you get this idea of eye services, which simply means this. People that at work are conscious of who's watching so they can determine how they will function at that time. Okay, um, in my dad's uh, business, I had three brothers, or two brothers, three counting myself. We worked for my dad. There were two words that we found to be transformational, Okay. Uh, we were kind of stuck in that place for about 12 hours a day, okay? And we got, we got pretty creative, okay, with uh, interesting things that you could do with four and two customers, okay? Um, and I, I, won't, I, will, I will spare you the details so that I'm not a bad example to the young people. But when we were on one of those, I don't know, it, it, was, it was boredom busting. That's what we were doing, Okay. It's like I need a change of pace. If you, if you know me, you know I regularly need a change of pace, okay? So we would just get kind of creative, out of boredom, all right? Two words were transformational. Dad's coming. Okay, because that means someone through the front door of the store saw a tan and brown truck drive by, and it was amazing how quickly we would change. Okay, now what is Paul saying? Paul's saying if you're always doing your work with an eye towards, am I being watched right now? Okay, you're going to tend to live a compromising life in the context of your work. You're not going to be committed to obeying in everything because what you're really concerned about is getting away with what you can get away with, and when the boss is watching, uh, your demeanor changes. Now, because of the invention of cameras, people have become more productive, okay? Okay in their workplaces, because most people are aware that in most workplaces, there is an eye on you at almost all times. And what Paul is saying is, don't let your work be motivated by the camera that records your behavior. Let your work be motivated by the God who sees all things, by the one with whom nothing is hidden from his sight. Now, I think the hard part of this call to full obedience is that the call is unqualified. And this is where the struggle, I think, ensues. 
And see, there are certain bosses that it's easy to work for. There are certain jobs that are somewhat pleasant and enjoyable for people. But for a lot of people, work is not a context that they look forward to going into. And the question becomes, okay, how do I function in that setting? And I think the answer is very straightforward in this text. Paul says, obey your masters without qualification and everything. The person that has a responsibility to direct and guide your work life deserves your respect and obedience. And I think it's pretty much that simple. And I think that when you as a worker don't work just for a paycheck, but you work to honor God above all things, it will transform your relationship to the people that have responsibility for you in the workplace. It's not always easy. It's not what Paul's saying. But he is saying that there is a consistent pattern that should mark the life of the child of God in their workplace relationships. Work is not only a place where you go to get a paycheck. It is the place where you go to serve the Lord and to fulfill a calling. And I think Paul here makes that abundantly clear. Verse 23, he says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. So in the heart of a Christian, it should be, even though I don't like my boss, or even though my boss at times is unethical, I have a higher calling from God. And that is to work as for the Lord. That my desire in this workplace is to see that God is honored in everything and all that I do. And, and I like how Paul stresses this. He says in verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Paul, in this case, I think is elevating work. And and I think the other thing that he's saying is, in verse 24, he says, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord that you're serving. Okay, so here's the question for you. Do you go to work for the paycheck? Or do you go to work to honor Christ? They say, well, I need time to think about that. Okay? And, and I think what Paul is saying is that both are true. Why? Because the reason we work is to get resources to provide for a family. It is not crass on your part to go to work for a paycheck. It's appropriate, right? If God demands that an owner pay his worker, right, then obviously that's part of the reason, but it's not the whole reason. And so we want to be sure as Christians that we're always thinking in a, in a broader way than a person that doesn't know Christ, They go there to get the paycheck, they don't really give a rip, and they go home with what they wanted. I can't live like that. As a Christian, I shouldn't live like that. I have a higher calling. That's why Paul says so clearly, it is the Lord you're serving. So that every part of my life as a believer is dedicated to the glory of Jesus Christ and to the making known of his name. Okay? That's... That's the direction that Paul's moving here in relationship to the employer-employee relationship. And I think verse 24 is fascinating because what Paul is saying is the paycheck isn't your final reason for going to work and your ultimate boss is not your boss, it's Jesus. And when you plug that into your thinking, things necessarily will begin to change. Now, I'm going to tell you this. That will take a conscious effort. You're going to have to make decisions to say that my purpose here, Carmel, this goes to what you were talking about, being in the Word of God on a regular basis is the means by which I'm reminded of my God-given responsibilities as salt and light here. There are people around me that desperately need to see Jesus. 
And if I fall into the trap of the complaining and backbiting and all the stuff that goes on in the workplace, I kill the witness. I extinguish the light that Christ has called me to be. Your ultimate boss is Christ. One writer made this observation. He said, what's the difference between a Christian baker, not John Baker, but a Christian baker, and a baker that doesn't believe in Jesus? Do they make bread differently? Do they use different ingredients? The answer is no. So what's the difference? The difference is why you do what you do. The difference is fundamentally what is driving your behavior. Because if it's simply to get a paycheck, all bets are off as to what you'll allow in your life. But if it's to honor Christ, that becomes, for a Christian, guardrails within which we live that are beautifully protective and that will make you a productive employee who accurately and appropriately represents your ultimate master. And it will deliver you from thinking, that guy's my boss, yes and no. Jesus is the one to whom you will ultimately answer. And he sees the whole picture. So for the employee, Paul is concerned that when we go to work, we, we go to work tomorrow. Or we go to work when we get home and get involved with family life. And I, I want you to have a, a fuller view of, of how you use all of your time to honor Christ. Not just at the workplace when I'm punched in, but in the living out of my entire life. For the glory of God. And I believe when you, when you do that, you will find that that division between secular and sacred in your life begins to dissolve. And you realize that all of my life is worship. All of my life is to be lived for the glory and exaltation of Jesus Christ. And you will find that transformational. So I ask you this question. Tomorrow morning, will you go to work as a Christian? Will you get involved in the routine of your daily life as a representative of Jesus Christ for your children or for your fellow workers or for those that you go to school with as a young person? Will you embrace mission as your God-given calling? All right, over to those that... Uh, well, let, let, me, let me just hit this one verse. I, I, verse 25 is a very interesting verse in terms of its placement. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Now, that's a sober verse that I think moves in two directions. I think it moves towards the employer and towards the employee. It is a verse that, that basically says, you don't get away with anything. Even when the boss's eye is on you, or when it's, when it's off of you in this case, you're not getting away with anything. And this, this verse to me is just kind of sits there as a sober call to an obedient life, to a God-honoring life. I'm not getting away with anything because I have the privilege and the joy of serving the one who knows all things. Now, so Paul quickly then addresses those who had the responsibility for leadership in the workplace or the owner of a business. He says, masters, provide for your slaves. And I want you to catch these words, what is right and what is fair. Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, I, there's a couple ways you can take that threat, that, that, or that, that text. That text for you could simply be a reminder. But it kind of sounds like a threat, doesn't it? You know you have a master in heaven. And th there's a sense in which God 
speaks strongly through Paul here to those that have responsibility over other people to be careful about how they live. And the reason for that, I think, will come out in just a moment. What does Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, encourage a master to do for his worker? He says, provide, which means that work is the means by which an employee is given Money, resources to meet their needs. Provide for your slaves what is right and what is fair. And I think it moves in two ways. I think this text is calling for fair wages and compensation. Okay, I think that's clear in the text. And the idea of fair and right, the word right is the word for what is righteous or just. Okay, meaning there is a number that is appropriate and there are numbers that are paid to people that are inappropriate that are unfair, okay? And the idea of fair is the idea of equal, meaning if someone is worth X and you pay them Y, you are dishonoring God in that. A worker deserves a fair wage. That is biblical truth. And to take that from someone at some level drifts into an area that I think you and I should be very careful about moving into. This idea of treating them with respect, I think also for, for someone that owns a business or is responsible for people, has that, the idea of not putting people at risk personally and physically and financially, okay? That there is a responsibility that is assumed in employee to give people enough to see that their needs are met. I think that's the clear implication of this text, okay? Here's what Proverbs 14.31 says. It's those who take advantage of the poor insult their maker, but those who are kind to the needy honor God. I don't know which side of that equation you want to be on. I know which side I want to be on. They insult their maker. Proverbs 22, 16. He who oppresses the poor to increase his wealth and who gives to the rich, both will come to poverty. Now, folks, I think what that's meaning, it doesn't mean that every dishonest person is going to go bankrupt in this lifetime. But a life that is lived to abuse others and to benefit oneself and to fill one's own pockets without appropriate regard for the person working for you will be judged by God. And I think that is the ultimate poverty that a person can face. I think the point of this text of chapter 4 and verse 1 is simply this. Abuse in the context of being an employer is possible. And I think that Paul's indicating that in his time and day, it was somewhat common and intolerable for the Christian. Okay? And I think we as the church need to not be afraid of being truthful about these things. Because I think God's word is addressing in this context a possible, a possible abuse where many are loving self more than they're loving their neighbor. And in many cases, how people are paid is not an expression of love. It's an expression of lust for money. And I think we need to be honest about that type of truth. The key concern in the Bible is do not abuse. And you can read through the Old Testament. You can read through the New Testament. Many, many texts about compensation and withholding pay from people. And I think I can summarize it by saying this. An employer, the owner of a business, is to be sure that his employees can take care of their family. I think that's a God-given obligation and responsibility that arises at many levels uh, throughout the Bible. 
the motive is your master and theirs is in heaven. And I think that's meant to stand the owner of a company up and say, remember who you answer to. You don't answer to men, you answer to God. And I think that is meant to be a very strong uh, confrontation that the ultimate boss of that worker is me, not you. I think that's what God is saying. We live in a a country and a, a, a place where we have a financial system that we tend to refer to as capitalism. Um, capitalism is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful opportunity for people to make money uh, and to provide for their families. But it is also a system that is open to abuse. I often think of it this way. I'm glad that I live in a country that is democratic. We as a country desire to spread democracy. You know what the problem with democracy is? If the people that vote lose their moral compass... It becomes dangerous. It happened in Germany. Okay? When people have their moral compass, it is a beautiful thing. Capitalism in the hands of moral people with a moral ethic and foundation can be a beautiful thing. In the hands of someone that lacks discretion and concern for others, it becomes one of the most dangerous things on the planet. And I think we just at times need to be honest and say that we as Christians need to infiltrate our world with an attitude that says Christ is the ultimate master. Life is not about us. It's about God. And let that begin to seep in and influence every part of our lives. That we think Christianly, not Americanly, about our privileges. Okay? So I, I want to challenge you. Okay? Most Christians have never sat down and thought about this stuff from a biblical perspective. They thought of it as Americans, but not as Christians. Okay, and I like the capitalist system. I I don't have a problem with it, but I have seen it abused. Nine years ago, my nephew was in, at 24 years old, was in a tragic accident. Uh, Worked for a company named Alan Myers. Kyle just had his 10th anniversary this week. And they have two children uh, now that God has blessed them with. When he was in the hospital, day one, Alan Myers, the owner of Alan Myers Construction, if you've gone down 476, you've seen black trucks with gold letters. On the side, they say Alan Myers. That's all that's there. He's the owner of the company. Alan Myers happens to be a born-again Christian. When my nephew was in Hahnemann Hospital in a coma, Uh, He was there for two months in a coma, paralyzed basically from this point down. 24 years old, just married, just got done uh, putting himself through school and getting on with his life. And uh, in a freak accident, that all ended. Alan Myers came to the hospital with one of the presidents of the corporation. Pulled Kyle's wife aside. This is day two after the incident. Pulled her aside and said, you'll never have to worry financially. Here's what they did, not because they had to, but because they believed it was the right thing to do. They promised to pay him his full salary with increases for the rest of his life. And when I heard that, I was like, wow. 
That's not a guy who's looking at his pocketbook. It's not a guy who pulled out a calculator. That's a guy who sensed the responsibility, heard from God in his situation. I'm not saying everyone should do that either. I'm not saying that. But I will say is there's a man who took what God has blessed him with and put skin on Jesus in a way that is serious. It's for my family, for the broad selection of people that know my nephew. It has been one of the most amazing testimonies. And, And I say that to you to say, I don't need to think in terms of what I can get away with or what I can maximize in terms of personal potential financially. I need to think about what best exalts Christ. What best says that Alan Myers is a Christian when he is faced with that situation? Now, he clearly is a person who has the capacity to do it. He has thousands of trucks and vehicles and everything, okay? But I I was so, when I saw someone respond appropriately in that situation, I was like, that is life-changing to see something like that. I'm not surprised that God has blessed that man's business, and I'm glad he has. And every time I see their trucks, that that thought runs through my mind. Here's the word in my mind, honor, honor, honor. We get to put skin on Jesus. I want you to think real quickly in, 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 in application of this text. Three simple principles about how we work. One is this, be honest in your workplace. Dishonesty in the workplace is unfortunately very common. Uh, I, I, you know, it doesn't take much to stand out as a Christian. It doesn't take a stellar, uh, extraordinary person to be a life for Jesus. It just takes a person who's willing to say, I, I'm willing to adopt the ethics that God word, God's word lays out for me in my workplace and in my, my work life and my family. And if you do that, you will find that your life becomes a life of impact. You will become a difference maker, not because you're extraordinary, but because you're devoted to the right thing. So I would encourage you in your workplace to be a person who is, is honest. I've had people say to me, one particular person who was a pretty dear friend and a leader in his church, he would say to me, Tim, he wasn't a pastor, but he was one of the elders. He would say to me, Tim, I just, you, you don't understand. And this is a person that is a professional, highly paid professional. He said, you don't understand. I, I, can't, I can't be all of that when I'm at work. I would get into arguments with this friend, just like, you don't have a choice. I don't have a choice. In the workplace, I have to be a Christian. I can't, I can't park it on Sunday morning and be something different through the week because that's just the way the world works. No, I can't. And what about the idea of paying a price for who you are as a Christian? What about standing for truth? What about taking it financially? What about losing a contract so that God can be glorified through your life? Dishonesty is rampant, and it is accepted, unfortunately, in many Christian circles. Proverbs 18.9, talking about the workplace, says, One who is slack in work is close kin to a vandal. One who is slack in work who works dishonestly, does not give 100% in their work life, is close kin to a vandal, literally means a thief. 
God takes this seriously. Proverbs 11, verse 1, and this is talking about business dealings. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but an accurate weight is his delight. That when I mete out what is fair and just, God loves it. And I drift into the mindset of my day, it's an abomination to the Lord. When asked to do something dishonest at work in order to get gain, say something like this to your boss. I won't lie for you, and I won't lie to you. I won't steal for you, and I won't steal from you. See, folks, it's time for the church to stand up and say, I am a Christian, and you can do what you want to me as your boss, but my main master, my main man is Christ. And if not doing what you've asked me to do costs me, I'm prepared for that. But I want you to know I will not lie for you or steal for you. I won't lie to you and I won't steal from you. But you got to live the life to make that kind of commitment. You can't be about eye service. You have to be about God's glory and making your reputation as a Christian known in the workplace. Be honest. And I think dishonesty is a trust issue. If I don't trust God to provide, I have to cut corners. I have to make it work. And I have to sacrifice my convictions. Be honest in your workplace. And I'm going to tell you, you will stand out. Secondly, be diligent. Be a hard worker. It's sad that in many workplaces in America, people get by. They, they do what they have to do, but they don't pursue excellence in their work life. And I think... As a Christian, you should be known as, if not the best, one of the best workers that your supervisor has under their care. And by that, you win their respect because you are reasonable in how you function. You are diligent. You are honest. You're hardworking. You're not kiting hours. You're, you're, you're straight for the glory of God in the context of your workplace. Proverbs 31 says this about a woman who worked very hard. It says, she gets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for the task. And this text is in the context of her work relationships. She's not a wallflower. She's not a slouch. She's called virtuous. And the word takes on the ideas of one who is valiant, strong, and noble. Folks, here's what I want to say to you. When God talks about work that is done properly for his honor and for his glory, he heaps praise upon it. It honors him. May God help us to recover diligence and, and, and tenacity and, 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 and focus in our workplace. I had the privilege of growing up under a dad who is very average in many, many ways. High school dropout. If you ever spend time with him, he's probably made that known to you. For some reason, I think he's proud of that, which is kind of sad, but true. <laughs> my dad was a good businessman. I'm not going to tell you that my dad was stellar, okay? My dad was a good, consistent businessman. I watched a very average man win the respect of a Mennonite community by hard work by honesty and those people have high standards and I watched just an average person rise in a beautiful way by simply saying I'm going to work hard and provide for my family 
in a way that honors God. And I'm not telling you there's anything extraordinary or stellar about it, but there's something beautiful about it that to this day impacts my life because I watched someone do it in a way that I think honored God to the best of his ability. I want to be that person. The last thing I give you as a challenge is this. When you go into your workplace, be compassionate. I mean, for real. Don't feign concern because it gets you points with people. Don't talk a good talk and then not walk that walk. I mean, really care about people. Look at the life of Christ. Look at the story of the Good Samaritan. These are people that saw needs and interrupted their life to do good to others in a way that would honor and glorify God. Be compassionate. Be genuinely concerned about serving others. I'll give you this challenge, and I'll just, I'll just skip the last part of my notes here. What is it that motivates genuine concern for unlovely coworkers and bosses? You're saying, yeah, Tim, be concerned and be compassionate. You don't know my boss. You don't know my coworkers. It's not easy. I understand that, folks. I live in the same world you live in. I know what it is to get burned. I know what it is to get hurt. I know what it is to be treated unfairly. We all know. So what motivates us to continue to love and to give and to serve? And my answer very simply is this, the gospel. Romans 5.8 says this. It says, God showed his love to us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's all I need. That's all I need is to know that the one who loves me in spite of my rebellion, who died for me knowing everything about me and purchased me with his blood and made me his son and has an inheritance for me, knowing that he did that for me informs and motivates how I should live my life. If Christ, then Tim. So my challenge to you this morning is this. I know why you're going to work tomorrow. You're going to get a paycheck to care for your family and hopefully to care for others. How are you going to do it? Will you go saying, God, this is my mission field. This is my divine appointment. This is the calling that you gave me. Whether I love it or not, it's where you have me today. It's the people that you have me influencing today. I want to put skin on Jesus in this place. I'm going to read you one last verse. And I just listen to this. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. To try to please them. And not to talk back to them. And not to steal from them. But to show them that they can be fully trusted. Listen to this. So that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Folks, that's why we go to work. That's why we get up and execute our day in a way that honors and glorifies God. Why? Because by this, we make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Those that are loved by Christ and know they're loved can love. And we have the privilege in our workplace 
of going out and being salt and light so that God will be known. Folks, realize this. The only Jesus that many people will see is you. And you need to realize as a Christian that before you ever open your mouth, your life is speaking. And the speaking of your life will lead to opportunities to speak the words of life when you do it for the glory of God. May God help us tomorrow morning to go in Jesus' name, to go to make a difference, to go to be light, not just to get a paycheck, but to glorify God. Father, as we think about tomorrow morning, help us, Lord, to embrace vigorously the opportunity that is before us to put skin on Christ. The opportunity that we have to represent him well. Father, I pray that if I have a friend here this morning who in their workplace knows that they've been falling down, that their attitude and their talk and their work ethic is, for a Christian, inappropriate and at best unacceptable. Because they've been seeing work as their secular life. God, I pray that you will give us a conviction to say, I need to go to work in a Christianly way. I need to go to work to represent Christ. This is my God-given opportunity. And Lord, we would pray that as Brad goes with Kelly to Iraq to represent Christ, that we would go to our workplace tomorrow and to our work relationships tomorrow to represent Christ and to live out the great commandment, to love others as we love ourselves. Lord, to do that, I need the strength of your spirit desperately, desperately. So fill us, Lord, and take us from here today to love and honor and serve you. I pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.